Chapter Two of the Vikings by Ellen Mauer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kevin Johnson. Chapter Two, the Viking movement down to the middle of the ninth century. England was possibly the scene of the earliest Viking raids, but after the Dorchester raid, the sack of Lindisfarne in seven ninety three and the devastation of the monastery of St. Paul's at Jarrow in 794, we hear nothing more of Vikings in England until 835. The fate of Ireland was different. Attacks began almost at the same time as in England, and continued without intermission. Vikings sailed round the west coast of Scotland, Skye, and then Lambay Island off Dublin were invaded in 795. Glamorganshire was ravaged in the same year, and the Isle of Man was attacked in 798. Iona was plundered in 802 and again in 806. In 807, invaders appeared off the coast of Sligo and made their way inland as far as Roscommon, and in 811, Munster was plundered. In 821, the Howth Peninsula near Dublin and two small islands in Wexford Haven were ravaged. The Vikings had completely encircled Ireland with their fleets, and by the year 834 they had made their way well into the interior of the island, so that none were safe from their attacks. They no longer contented themselves with isolated raids. Large fleets began to visit Ireland and to anchor in the numerous lauks and harbours with which the coast abounds. Thence they made lengthy raids on the surrounding country and often strengthened their base by building forts on the shore of the lauks or harbours in which they had established themselves. It was in this way that Dublin, Waterford and Limerick first rose to importance. Of the leaders of the Vikings at this time there is only one whose figure stands out at all clearly and that is Turges, bracket, Old Norse Thorgester, end of bracket, who first appeared in 832 at the sack of Armagh. He had come to Ireland with a great and royal fleet and assumed the sovereignty over the foreigners in Erin. He had fleets on Lauchnaig at Louth and on Lauchray, and raided the country as far south as the Meath district. Turges was not the only invader at this time, Indeed, so numerous were the invading hosts that the chronicles tell us, after this there came great sea-cast floods of foreigners into Erin, so that there was not a point thereof without a fleet. The power of Turges culminated in 841, when he drove the abbot of Armagh into exile, usurped the abbacy, and exercised the sovereignty of North Ireland. At the same time his wife Ota, bracket Old Norse Auther, end of bracket, profaned the monastery of Clonmacnoise, and gave audience, probably as a vulva or prophetess, upon the high altar. Three years later Turges was captured by the Irish and drowned in Loch Owl, bracket C.O. Westmeath, end of bracket. The early attacks on England and the first invasion of Ireland were alike due to Norsemen rather than Danes. This is evident from their general course. 
from the explicit statement of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and from the fact that the first arrival of Danes in Ireland is definitely recorded in the year 849. The attack on Dorchester, bracket, circa 786-802, end of bracket, lying as it does near the centre of the south coast of England, is somewhat strange if it is assigned to the traditional date, viz. 787, but there is no authority for this, and if it is placed at any date nearer to 802, bracket, before which it must have taken place, end of bracket, it is probable that the attack may be explained as an extension of Viking raids down St. George's Channel and round the southwest corner of England. In 835, the attacks on England were renewed after an interval of 40 years, but as they now stand in close connection with contemporary invasions of Frankish territory, there is every reason to believe that they were of Danish rather than of Norse origin. The attacks began in the south and west, but they soon spread to East Anglia and Lindsay. In 842, the same army ravaged London, Etaples, and Rochester. In 851, Athelstan of Kent defeated the Danes at sea in one of the rare battles fought with them on their own element. And in the same year, they remained for the winter in Thanet, probably owing to the loss of their ships. The size and importance of these attacks may be gauged from the fact that in this year a fleet of some 350 Danish ships sailed up the Thames. It was probably that same fleet, with slightly diminished numbers, which in 852 ravaged Frisia and then sailed round the British Isles, came to Ireland and captured Dublin. In 855 the Danes wintered for the first time in Sheppey, and we reach the same point in the development of their attacks on England, to which they had already attained in Ireland. We pass away from the period of raiding. The Danes now came prepared to stay for several years at a time, and to carry on their attacks with unceasing persistency. The course of events in the Frankish Empire ran on much the same lines as in England and Ireland during these years, except that here trouble arose on the land boundary between Denmark and the Franks, as well as on the sea coast. Alarmed by the conquest of the Saxons, the Danish king Gudroder collected a fleet at Slesvik, and in 808 he crossed the Eider and attacked the Abodriti, bracket, in Mecklenburg-Schweren, end of bracket, a Slavonic tribe in alliance with the Franks. He also sent a fleet of some 200 vessels to ravage the coast of Frisia, laid claim to that district and to Saxony, north of the Elbe, and threatened to attack Charlemagne in his own capital. The emperor was preparing to resist him when news arrived, bracket 810, end of bracket, of the death of Gudroder at the hands of one of his followers and the consequent dispersal of the Danish fleet. Soon after, disputes over the succession arose between the family of Gudroder and that of an earlier king, Harold. Ultimately, the contest resolved itself into one between the sons of Gudroder, especially one Horik, bracket Old Norse, Heriker, ender bracket, and a certain Harold. It lasted for several years, the sons of Gudroder, for the most part, maintaining their hold on Denmark. 
At one time, during the struggle, Harold and his brother Ragenfrother went to Vestfold in Norway, the extreme district of their realm, whose chief and peoples were refusing to be made subject to them, and gained their submission, showing clearly that at this time Denmark and southern Norway were under one rule, and rendering probable the identification of Gudrother with Gudrother the Yingling, who about this time was slain by a retainer in Stifla Sound on the south coast of Norway. This king ruled over Vestfold, half Vingomork, and perhaps Agthir. Both parties were anxious to secure the support of the Emperor Louis, and in the end Harold gained his help by accepting baptism at Mainz in 826. He promised to promote the cause of Christianity in Denmark, while Louis, in return, granted him the district of Reustringen in Frisia, as a place of retreat in case of necessity. The Danes thereby gained their first foothold within the empire. Sufficient has been said of the relation between Denmark and the empire on its land boundary. We must now say something of the attacks made by sea. The first were made in 799 on the coast of Aquitaine, and they were probably due to raiders from Ireland who followed a well-known trade route from South Ireland to the ports of southern France. In 800, Charlemagne inspected the coast from the Somme to the Seine, and gave orders for the equipment of a fleet and the strengthening of the coast guard against Northmen pirates. When Gudrother's fleet plundered the islands off the Frisian coast in 810, Charlemagne gave orders for his fleet to be strengthened once more, but the results were meagre in the extreme. The passage of the channel was no longer safe, and year after year, from some time before 819, Vikings harried the island of Normoitie at the mouth of the Loire, commanding the port of Nantes and the extensive salt trade of the district. The island of Ray, opposite La Rochelle, was raided in similar fashion. The Frankish Empire was free from attack between the years 814 and 833. During the same time the English coast was also unvisited, and it is probable that the struggles for the succession in Denmark had for the time being reduced that kingdom to inactivity. About the year 830, the Danish king Hereker seems to have established himself firmly on the throne. Well, on the other hand, the Emperor Louis was troubled by the ambition of his sons, Louis, Pippin, and Lothair. It is probably no chance coincidence that these events synchronized with the renewal of Viking attacks on Frisia. Throughout their history, the Vikings showed themselves well informed of the changing political conditions of the countries which they visited and ready to make the utmost use of the opportunities which these might give for successful invasion. Phrygia was the main point of attack during the next few years. Four times was the rich trading town of Durstead ravaged. Fleets sailed up the Velt, the Maas, and the Scheldt. Antwerp was burned and the island of Walcheren plundered, so that by the year 840 the greater part of Phrygia, north of the Vlie, was in Danish hands, and so it remained till the end of the century. The Danish king Hereker repeatedly denied all complicity in these raids, and even promised to punish the raiders, 
but it is impossible to tell how far his denials were genuine. Equally difficult is it to say how far Harold, in his Frisian home, was responsible for these attacks. The analysts charge him with complicity, but Lewis seems to have thought it best to bind him by fresh gifts, and, bracket, probably about 839, end of bracket, granted the district round Durstead itself to him and his brother Rorik, bracket, Old Norse Rorikr, end of bracket, on condition that they helped to ward off Viking attacks. All the efforts of the emperor to equip a fleet or to defend the coast were to no purpose, and there was even a suspicion that the Frisian populace were in sympathy with the Vikings. So great was the terror of attack that when in 839 a Byzantine mission, including some Rose or Swedes from Russia, visited the emperor at Ingelheim, the Swedes were for a time detained under suspicion as spies. On the death of Louis the Pious in 840, things went from bad to worse. The division of the empire in 843 gave the coast from the Eider to the Wesser to Louis, from the Wesser to the Scheldt to Lothair, and the rest to Charles, removing all possibility of a united and organized defence, and soon these princes entered on the fatal policy of calling in the Vikings to assist them in their quarrels. Thus Lothair in 841 endeavoured to bind Harold to his cause by a grant of the islands of Walcheren, and Harold is found in the following year with Lothair's army on the Moselle. The Viking expeditions to England and France stand now in close connection. In 841 the valley of the Seine was ravaged as far as Rouen. In 842 Etaples in Picardy was destroyed by a fleet from England, while in 843 Nantes fell a prey to their attacks. From their permanent quarters at Noirmoitier, the Vikings sailed up the Garonne and penetrated inland as far as Toulouse. In 844, we hear from Arab historians of their vessels swarming on the coasts of Spain like dark red seabirds. But while they effected landings at Lisbon and Cadiz, and at Arzilla in Morocco, and captured Seville, with the exception of its citadel, the Mussulman resistance was too stout for them to effect much. As a result of this expedition, the emir of Cordova, Abid ar-Rahman II, sent an embassy to the king of the Majus, bracket, i.e. the Magi, or the heathen, one of the commonest Arab names for the Vikings, end of bracket. The ambassador found the king living in an island three days' journey from the mainland, but we are told that the heathen occupied many other neighbouring isles, and the mainland also, he was courteously received by the king and became an especial favourite with the queen Naud, bracket, question mark, old nurse Auther, end of bracket. His companions were alarmed at the intimacy, and as a result, the ambassador paid less frequent visits to court. The queen asked him why, and when he told her the reason, she said that, owing to perfect freedom of divorce, there was no jealousy among the Majus. The details of the story are too vague to admit of certainty, but it would seem as if the embassy had visited the court of the great Turges and his equally remarkable wife, Auther, in Ireland, or perhaps that of Olaf the White and his wife, Auther.
In 845, Haraker of Denmark sailed up the Elbe and destroyed Hamburg, while in the same year the dreaded Ragnar Lothbrok, most famous of all Vikings, sailed up the Seine as far as Paris. While on its retreat from Paris, after the usual devastation, a strange and deadly disease, possibly some form of dysentery due to scantiness of food resulting from a hard winter, broke out in the Danish army. Various legends arose in connection with this event, and it finds a curious echo in the story told by Saxo Grammaticus of an expedition made by Ragnar among the Biarmians, bracket in northern Russia, end of bracket, when that people by their prayers called down a plague of dysentery upon the Danes, in which large numbers perished. In the end, the historical plague was stayed when Herakr commanded the Vikings on their return to Denmark to refrain from flesh and meat for fourteen days. Whether as a result of the plague or from some other cause, Herakr now showed himself ready to come to terms with Lewis, and for the next eighty years there was complete peace along the Eider boundary. The whole of the coast was still open to attack, however. Frisia was hardly ever free from invaders. Brittany was obliged to buy off Danish attacks in 847, while Noimoitier continued to form a basis of attack against southern France in the Gironde district. The Viking invasions in France had attained much the same stage as that to which we have already traced them in England and Ireland. End of chapter 2